mythology, a man called Narcissus fell in love with his own reflection as he stared into a pool of water. The Greek legend has it that Narcissus was so spellbound by his own image that he eventually died of starvation. It's, of course, from Narcissus we get the contemporary word, narcissism, which is an unhealthy focus on your self. And it's been a common feature of human existence, long before Narcissus and long afterwards as well, from the ancient monuments of powerful figures and conquerors who longed to immortalise themselves in statues made to look like themselves, to the modern monuments of the ordinary man or woman's social media channels. During the week, I read this account of someone's use of Instagram. They said this, Yesterday, I crafted the perfect Instagram story. I snapped a few artfully angled photos, wrote some quippy captions, added the appropriate number of boomerangs and emojis, and then I sat back and tapped through the whole thing, admiring my own little movie. And then I watched it again, trying to view it as a third party would, looking for any flaws. And then for good measure, I watched it again, and again, and again. And by the end of the day, I had flipped through my video story almost a dozen times, perking up at each new comment and view count like a proud staged mum. You're probably throwing shade on me right now. She's so full of herself. But I'm willing to bet that you've done the exact same thing. Now, I won't get you to raise your hand if you can empathise with that. If I knew how to use the Instagram story feature, I'm sure that I would echo this person's experience. In fact, a, a clinical professor from Stanford University has recently stated this. We are living in an era where humans are putting forth these edited and inflated versions of their lives, this idealised self, and then they are quite literally falling in love with themselves. But as with Narcissus of old, Falling in love with yourself is a dangerous place to linger. The reality is that our lives are much more messier than our airbrushed Instagram newsfeed will reveal. And although deep down we know that's true, we still find it so difficult to accept, which is only magnified as we look at everybody else's airbrushed social media channels. And so we then feel this disconnect between the self and reality, which just leads to sadness and despair, stress, anxiety, and even depression. That's the world that we live in. Is there a better way? Is there a better way to live? Well, in Acts chapter 12, we discover that there is. By the time we get to Acts chapter 12, the church has been growing strong. There are thousands and thousands of Christians now following the risen Lord Jesus in Judea, Samaria, and last week we saw beyond. But of course, the growth in the early church has been anything but smooth. There has been ongoing opposition and persecution. And as we get to Acts chapter 12 today, and we return to the city of Jerusalem where Christianity began, we see a new round of persecution and opposition to the church with King Herod. And Acts chapter 12, I want to suggest to you, really is a tale of two thrones. 
King Herod and his throne, and as we'll see, King Jesus and his throne. Let's look at throne one, the throne of a mighty man, a self-proclaimed mighty man in King Herod. Verse one, about that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church and he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. Here is throne one, here is King Herod, and this King Herod is the grandson of King Herod the Great, the one who tried to have Jesus killed when he was a mere baby because he perceived him to be a threat to his throne. But this new King Herod is clearly following in his grandfather's footsteps. He has had James, the apostle, James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, the apostle, murdered by the sword. And here is the very first apostle in the scriptures to be killed for his faith. Not the first Christian to be killed, we know of Stephen and others, but here is the mention of the very first apostle, one of the 12, to be killed for his faith. Indeed, you might recall James and John on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus, arguing amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus turns to James and says, James and John, can you drink the cup to which I am about to drink? And James says quite naively, yes, of course I can. Jesus said those words back then, you will, James. You will, James. And here James drinks that cup. Herod, we also see, is a, a people pleaser. He does this and finds approval of the majority Jewish population. And that stroke to his ego says, well, I can keep going with this. And so he has the Apostle Peter this time thrown into prison with the expectation that he too would face the sword. But there are hints, even in these opening verses of Acts chapter 12, that the mighty man of Herod, he is not quite in control, at least not in complete control. For unlike James, he doesn't have Peter killed immediately because it just happens to be at the time of the Passover. And we assume that he didn't want to kill Peter at the Passover because he didn't want to offend too many people. You know, like at Christmas time, it'd be a bit rough to throw someone into prison on Christmas Day. It would offend some people. And so you can see that even Herod, even his power to some degree is controlled by the approval of the people that he rules. There's also a sense in which I think Herod might be afraid that Peter could escape prison because we're told that he orders four squads of four soldiers each, 16 soldiers to guard one man in prison. Why such an overkill of resources unless Herod was slightly afraid that he didn't have all control? No doubt he's referring to maybe other times where Peter has escaped prison, which we've seen in the book of Acts. In chapter 5, verse 17, we can see that. And the final hint that Herod may not be in complete control and have all sovereign power is that we're told in verse 5, in response to Herod's actions, but 
prayer was being made earnestly to God for Peter by the church. And as a reader of the story, now we are expecting something to happen beyond the control of King Herod. And it does. Because there is another throne, a throne that is more majestic than Herod's throne. There is another power that transcends all physical and political strength. Let's have a look at verse 6 to verse 12. God's throne. On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter, bound with two two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up! Then the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did so. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed. And he did not know what took place through the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and immediately the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. No prison or politician, no matter how powerful they think they are in and of themselves, can stop God or keep God's servants out of prison if God wills that they not be there. Herod had a small army protecting, guarding Peter. But God didn't need an army to rescue Peter. He just needed one angel. And he was very effective by himself. He appeared at night, bright light from heaven, lit up the whole cell. But the guards didn't even wake up. You know, someone walking into your bedroom at two o'clock in the morning and turning the lights on, didn't even wake up. Even when the chains fell off Peter and no doubt made a great clanking noise as they hit the hard floor, the guards still did not wake up. And I love the bit where they get to the final locked gate as they leave the cell. It was like walking out of Kmart. The doors just opened by themselves. Now, of course, Peter doesn't fully realise what is going on until the angel leaves him standing in the street in the middle of the night. Peter thought he was having another vision. And fair enough, because the first words that are spoken by the angel to Peter are the exact same words that Peter heard from the voice from heaven in Acts chapter 10. Get up! You can understand why Peter thought he was having another vision, but it wasn't a vision. Indeed, it was a great rescue plan by the Lord himself, Peter realises in verse 11, by the Lord himself. Now, it should, of course, be obvious to you and to me that Peter did not save himself. He wasn't even thinking about escaping. What was Peter doing when the angel turned up? Sleeping. He needed to be struck on the side by the angel, like a parent trying to wake up their teenage son to get ready for school. 
Peter also wasn't busted out of prison by a, a Christian uprising in Jerusalem. There were thousands of Christians in Jerusalem by this time in the early church, but we don't see any of them protesting the arrest of their fearless leader. Rather, we see them praying. But although they were praying earnestly for Peter, it's also clear as we keep on reading that they weren't actually expecting Peter to survive or even to see him again, at least not in the flesh. Have a look at verse 13. Peter knocked at the door in the gateway and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognised Peter's voice and because of her joy, she did not open the... I love that. Just overwhelmed. I left the poor guy standing outside in the dark. But anyway, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gateway. You're crazy, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true. Then they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking... And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astounded. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Report these things to James. That's not James who has just been beheaded. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And to the other brothers. Then he departed and went to a different place. The church didn't expect to see Peter again. They were astounded to see him. They may have thought someday they might see him as a ghost or as an angel, whatever that means, but they did not expect to see him physically again. Now, we're not told what the church were praying. When I first read Acts chapter 12, I thought they were praying that Peter would be released from prison. But given they didn't expect to see him again, maybe they weren't praying that. Maybe they were praying that Peter would have an honourable death like James, his brother, Maybe they were praying that Peter would not deny Jesus even at this moment of truth in his life, that he would stay faithful to the Lord Jesus even to the end. Maybe they were praying that the apostolic message would not die even if the apostles died. We don't know what they were praying, but God did indeed answer their prayers in a way that they did not expect and in the most wonderful way. Now, of course... This whole passage raises a significant question, at least for me, and I'm sure it does for you. Why was Peter rescued from prison, but James wasn't? Why was Peter saved, but James faced the sword? Did the church not pray for James like they were praying for Peter? There's no indication that that's not the case. Was Jesus not powerful to stop James's death? Well, we know that's not the case either, because if he could save Peter, he could surely have saved James. And you also must remember if, when Jesus was facing his death, was he not powerful enough to stop it? Of course he was. A couple of Roman nails and a piece of wood were not enough to stop the Son of God if he wanted to step off. Sometimes there is a, a greater mission, isn't there? A greater plan that sometimes we cannot see. I think all we can say from Acts chapter 12 is that James and his mission was complete. And so the Lord Jesus called him home to glory. But Peter, Jesus still had more work to do. And so he was saved. But the main point that I want you to see at the moment is the power that Herod believes he has is just an ember 
compared to the blazing fire of power that the Lord Jesus has. And Herod is going to experience that firsthand as the end of the story comes. How the mighty fall. Soon enough, Herod discovers that Peter has escaped prison, escaped his grasp, if you like. And what does an insecure, power-hungry man do when he can feel his grasp on power slipping away from him? He tightens his grip even more. Have a look at verse 18 and 19. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution, tightening his grip on his fleeting power. If only Herod heeded the counsel of Princess Leia in Star Wars in her conversation with Tarkin, the more you tighten your grip, Herod, the more star systems will slip through your But Herod, annoyed by his slipping power, we're told retreats to his beach house near Tyre and Sidon. Verse 19b, then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been very angry with the Tyrians and Sidonians. Together they presented themselves before him. They won over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, and through him they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. So on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a public address to them. Tyre and Sidon is like King Herod's Instagram. It's a place where he knows that he will be affirmed by others. A world where he can parade his power and glory and feel good about himself. The Jewish historian Josephus also recounts this moment in history and says that King Herod was wearing a silver robe that just glistened in the sun, a symbol of his immense power and glory. But as with Narcissus all those years ago, as with Instagram addicts today, it can lead to a serious illness. Look at what follows, verse 22. The assembled people began to shout at Herod, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. At once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God and he became infected with worms and died. Luke seems to indicate that it happened on the spot. Josephus thinks it took five days of excruciating pain as the tapeworm worked its way, eating him from the inside out. A haughty Herod is humbled and humiliated. Herod should have seen God's hand at work in the rescue of Peter. He should have seen that he was fighting against the Lord God himself. But instead, Herod foolishly continued to seek his own glory and power, foolishly accepting the likes and the comments of his people, feeding his ego. And God used a lowly tapeworm to bring this man and his glory to an end. You see, friends, nothing can hinder 
the Lord Jesus. Nothing can stop his mission. Not Herod, not the death of an apostle, not even the imprisonment of Peter. Jesus is king. He rules and he reigns and nothing can stop him. A few years ago, there was a commercial, a series of TV ads put out by Eftpos. I don't know if you remember them. They were quite effective at communicating to people to take control of their own finances and spend their own money rather than putting everything on credit. And I think one of the reasons this series of commercials was so effective was the tagline used by FPOS to encourage people to take control. The tagline was, I am king. I fly the flag of me. I press the buttons. I call the shots. I bow to no one. I am king. It worked so well because it spoke directly to the human heart and the pride that is there and the desire to be in control, even if it's of our own finances. But you will know that we still have an epidemic of credit card debt in our culture. Why? Because as soon as you realise in our Instagram self-obsessed age, whatever power you get from controlling your own finances, spending your own money, when you look at everybody else's beautiful life, you realise it's not enough. And so we keep spending trying to get the beautiful life that is not real. We're all royal pretenders. Even when we think that we have control, like Tarkin in Star Wars, it slowly but surely keeps slipping from our fingers. It's because we're not meant to be king. There is only one king. His name is Jesus. And so whether you're still investigating the claims of Jesus, you're new to church or new to this whole God thing, or whether you've been a, a long-term servant of the Lord Jesus, we can all heed the Herod, heed the warning in Acts chapter 12. In Isaiah 66, the Lord says this, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. There's a beautiful picture at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 4 of these 24 elders representing, I think, the full complement of the people of God laying down their crowns before the one who is seated on the throne. Let me ask you, what crown do you have that you need to remove and lay down at the throne of Jesus? What crown have you been boasting in what crown have you been wearing longing for people to, to like and to comment? Oh, you look amazing. I wish I had that. A crown of private wealth? Lay it down. A crown of physical strength? Four gym memberships? Lay it down. A crown of personal righteousness? Thank you, God, that I'm not like everybody else. Lay it down. Lay down anything that you might have cause for boasting in this world. Lay it down before the throne of Jesus before he removes it from you anyway. None of those things can save. But Jesus can. And I think Peter's rescue from prison is a picture or an illustration of the rescue that we all need as well. 
for we are so much like Peter. Sleeping in the darkness, blind to the true power and love of Christ. Our vanity and pride has enslaved us, chained us to self-deception and decay. But it's into that darkness and desperation that God breaks in with the light of his glory and the good news of the gospel. Wakes us from our slumber and tells us to get up, follow me. There was an old saying that God helps those who helps themselves. Maybe you've heard that statement. It's simply not true, friends. God helps those who recognize that they are helpless themselves. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who recognize they are helpless. And like Peter, listen to the voice of God. Get up and follow him. And this life of humble dependence on Jesus, following him, is the ongoing mark of Christian discipleship. Although imperfect, the example of the early church is an example for you and for I of how we are to continually depend on King Jesus today, to earnestly pray. The church's first response when faced with danger was not to pick up the sword, not to protest, but to pray. Pray for rescue, maybe, but also to pray with thanks that no matter what happens to even the fiercest warrior of the Lord Jesus, a James or a Peter, that nothing will stop King Jesus and his purposes. Prayer is the truest and most basic of expressions of dependence on King Jesus. Guess what? We have a prayer and praise night coming up this Wednesday night. Please come. Now, whether we have Instagram or not, we are all prone to be a narcissus, mesmerized by our own reflection in the pool. But as with Narcissus, as with King Herod, and as with all of those who are addicted to loving themselves, we know it's a dangerous place to linger. Friends, it's time to lift our eyes off ourself and lift them to the throne of heaven where the one true king rules and reigns and it's only when we do that will we truly live let's pray heavenly father help us now to heed the herod to take our eyes off ourself and the pursuit of our own glory and power to lift our eyes to King Jesus, the one who is seated on the throne with all power and glory and majesty, the one who saves, the one who is guaranteed life forever.